You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. An Essay on Criticism, Part 2, by Alexander Pope. Of all the causes which conspire to blind, man's erring judgment, and misguide the mind, what the weak head with strongest bias rules, is pride, the never-failing vice of fools. Whatever nature hath, in worth denied, she gives in large recruits of needful pride. For as in bodies thus in souls we find, what once in blood and spirits, Swelled with wind, pride, where wit fails, steps into our defense, and fills up all the mighty void of sense. If once right reason drives that cloud away, truth breaks upon us with resistless day. Trust not yourself, but your defects to know. Make use of every friend and every foe. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Prurian spring. Their shallow droughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. Furred at first sight with what the muse imparts, in fearless youth we tempt the heights of arts, while from the bounded level of our mind short views we take, nor see the lengths behind. But more advanced, behold, with strange surprise, new distant scenes of endless science rise, so pleased at first, the towering Alps we try, mount o'er the vales, and seem to tread the sky. The eternal snows appear already past, and the first clouds and mountains seem the last. But those attained we tremble to survey, the growing labors of the lengthened way. The increasing prospect tires our wandering eyes. Hills peep o'er hills, and Alps on Alps rise. A perfect judge will read each work of wit with the same spirit that its author writ. Survey the whole, nor seek slight faults to find, where nature moves and rapture warms the mind. Nor lose, for that malignant dull delight, the generous pleasure to be charmed with wit, but in such lays as neither ebb nor flow, correctly cold and regularly low. That shunning faults, one quiet tenor keep, we cannot blame indeed, but we may sleep. In wit as nature, what affects our hearts is not the exactness of peculiar parts. Tis not a lip or eye we beauty call, but the joint force and full result of all. Thus, when we view some well-proportioned dome, the world's just wonder, and even thine, O Rome, no single parts unequally surprise, all comes united to the admiring eyes. No monstrous height or breadth or length appear. The whole at once is bold and regular. Whoever thinks a faultless piece to see, thinks what never was, nor is, nor e'er shall be, in every work regard the writer's end, since none can compass more than they intend. And if the means be just, the conduct true, applause, in spite of trivial faults, is due. As men of breeding, sometimes men of wit, to avoid great errors must the less commit, neglect the rules each verbal critic lays, for not to know such trifles is a praise. 
Most critics, fond of some subservient art, still make the whole depend upon a part. They talk of principles, but notions prize, and all to one loved folly sacrifice. Once on a time, La Mancha's night, they say, a certain bard encountering on the way, discoursed in terms as just, with looks as sage, as e'er could Dennis of the Grecian stage, concluding all were desperate sots and fools, who durst depart from Aristotle's rules. Our author, happy in a judge so nice, produced his play and begged the knight's advice, made him observe the subject and the plot, the manners, passions, unities, what not, all which exact to rule were brought about, were but a combat in the lists left out. What? Leave the combat out, exclaims the knight. Yes, or we must renounce the staggerite. Not so, by heaven, he answers in a rage. Knights, squires, and steeds must enter on the stage. So vast a throng the stage can ne'er contain. Then build anew, or act in a plain. Thus critics of less judgment than caprice, curious not knowing, not exact but nice, form short ideas and offend in arts, as most in manners, by love to parts. Some to conceit alone their taste confine, and glittering thoughts struck out at every line, pleased with a work where nothing's just or fit, one glaring chaos and wild heap of wit. Poets, like painters, thus unskilled to trace the naked nature of the living grace, with gold and jewels covering every part, and hide with ornaments their want of art. True wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed, something whose truth convinced at sight we find, that gives us back the image of our mind. As shades more sweetly recommend the light, so modest plainness sets off sprightly wit, for works may have more wit than does them good, as bodies perish through excess of blood. Others for language all their care express, and value books, as women men, for dress. Their praise is still, the style is excellent. The sense they humbly take upon content. Words are like leaves, and where they must abound, much fruit of sense beneath is rarely found. False eloquence, like the prismatic glass, its gaudy colors spread on every place. The face of nature we no more survey, all glares alike, without distinction gay. But true expression, like the unchanging sun, clears and improves whate'er it shines upon. It gilds all objects, but it alters none. Expression is the dress of thought, and still appears more decent as more suitable. A vile conceit in pompous word expressed is like a clown in regal purple dressed. For different styles with different subjects sort, as several garbs with country town and court, some by old words to fame have made pretense, ancients in phrase more moderns in their sense, such labored nothings, in so strange a style, amaze the unlearned and make the learned smile. Unlucky, as Fungoso in the play, these sparks with awkward vanity display what the fine gentleman wore yesterday, and but so mimic ancients' wits at best, as apes our grandshires in their doublets dressed. In words as fashions the same rule will hold, alike fantastic, if too new or old.
Be not the first by whom the new are tried, not yet the last to lay the old aside. But most by numbers judge a poet's song, and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. In the bright muse, though thousand charms conspire, her voice is all these tuneful fools admire, who haunt Parnassus but to please their ear, not mend their minds, as some to church repair, not for the doctrine, but the music there. These equal syllables alone require, though oft the ear the open vowels tire, while expletives their feeble aid do join, and ten low words oft creep in one dull line, while they ring round the same unvaried chimes, with sure returns of still expected rhymes. Wherever you find the cooling western breeze, in the next line it whispers through the trees. If crystal streams with pleasing murmurs creep, the readers threatened, not in vain, with sleep. Then at the last, and only couplets fraught, with some unmeaning thing they call a thought. A needless Alexandrine ends the song that, like a wounded snake, drags its slow length along. Leave such to tune their own dull rhymes, and know what's roundly smooth or languishingly slow, and praise the easy vigor of a line, where Denham's strength and Waller's sweetness join. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance, as those move easiest who have learned to dance. Tis not enough, no harshness gives offense. The sound must seem an echo to the sense. Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows, and the smooth stream in smoother numbers flows. But when loud surges lash the sounding shore, the hoarse, rough verse should like the torrent roar. When Ajax strives some rock's vast weight to throw, the line to labors, and the words move slow. Not so when swift Camilla scours the plain, flies o'er the unbending corn, and skims along the main. Hear how Timotheus varied lays surprise, and bid alternate passions fall and rise, while at each change the sound of Libyan Jove now burns with glory, and then melts with love. Now his fierce eyes with sparkling fury glow, now sighs steal out, and tears begin to flow. Persians and Greeks, like turns of nature found, and the world's victor stood subdued by sound. The power of music, all our hearts allow, and what Timotheus was, is Dryden now. Avoid extremes, and shun the fault of such, who still are pleased too little or too much, at every trifle scorn to take offense, that always shows great pride or little sense. Those heads, as stomachs, are not sure the best, which nauseate all, and nothing can digest. Yet let not each gay turn thy rapture move, for fools admire, but men of sense approve. As things seem large, which we through mists descry, dullness is ever apt to magnify. Some foreign writers, some our own despise, the ancients only, or the modern prize, thus wit like faith, by each man is applied to one small sect, and all are damned beside. Meanly, they seek the blessing to confine, and force that sun but on a part to shine, which not alone the southern wit sublimes, but ripens spirits in cold northern climes, which from the first has shone on ages past, enlights the present, and shall warm the last. 
though each may feel increases and decays, and see now clearer and now darker days. Regard not then if wit be old or new, but blame the false and value still the true. Some ne'er advance a judgment of their own, but catch the spreading notion of the town. They reason and conclude by precedent, and own stale nonsense, which they ne'er invent. Some judge of authors' names, not works, and then, nor praise nor blame the writings, but the men. Of all this servile herd, the worst is he that in proud dullness joins with quality a constant critic at the great man's board to fetch and carry nonsense for my lord. What woeful stuff this madrigal would be in some starved hackney, sonneteer, or me? But let a lord once own the happy lines, how the wit brightens, how the style refines, before his sacred name flies every fault, and each exalted stanza teems with thought. The vulgar thus, through imitation error, as oft the learned by being singular, so much they scorn the crowd that if the throng by chance go right, they purposely go wrong. So schismatics the plain believers quit, and are but damned for having too much wit. Some praise at morning what they blame at night, but always think the last opinion right. Amused by these is like a mistress used. This hour she's idolized, the next abused. While their weak heads, like towns unfortified, twixt sense and nonsense daily change their side, ask them the cause. They're wiser still, they say, and still tomorrow's wiser than today. We think our fathers fools, so wise we grow. Our wiser sons, no doubt, will think us so. Once school divines the zealous isle o'erspread, who knew most sentences was deepest read. Faith, gospel, all, seemed made to be disputed, and none had sense enough to be confuted. Scotists and Thomists now in peace remain, amidst their kindred cobwebs in Duck Lane. If faith itself has different dresses worn, what wonder modes in wit should take their turn? Oft, leaving what is natural and fit, the current folly proves the ready wit, and authors think their reputation safe, which lives as long as fools are pleased to laugh. Some valuing those of their own side or mind still make themselves the measure of mankind. Fondly we think we honor merit then, when we but praise ourselves in other men. Parties in wit attend on those of state, and public faction doubles private hate. Pride, malice, folly, against Dryden Rose, in various shapes of parsons, critics, bows, but since survived when merry jests were past, for rising merit will buoy up at last. Mighty return and bless once more our eyes, new blackmoors and new millborns must arise. Nay, should great Homer lift his awful head, Zoilus again would start up from the dead. Envy will merit as its shade pursue, but like a shadow proves the substance true, for envied wit, like soul eclipsed, makes known the opposing body's grossness, not its own. When first that sun to powerful beams displays, it draws up vapors which obscure its rays. But even those clouds at last adorn its way, reflect new glories, and augment the day. Be thou the first true merit to befriend. His praise is lost, who stays till all commend. 
Short is the date, alas, of modern rhymes, and tis but just to let em live betimes. No longer now that golden age appears, when patriarch wits survived a thousand years. Now length of fame our second life is lost, and bare three scores is all even that can boast. Our sons their fathers, failing language see, and such as Chaucer is shall Dryden be. So when the faithful pencil has designed some bright idea of the master's mind, where a new world leaps out at his command, and ready nature waits upon his hand, when the ripe colors soften and unite, and sweetly melt into just shade and light, when mellowing years their full perfection give, and each bold figure just begins to live, the treacherous colors the fair art betray, and all the bright creation fades away. Unhappy wit, like most mistaken things, atones not for that envy which it brings. In youth alone its empty praise we boast, but soon the short-lived vanity is lost. Like some fair flower, the early spring supplies that gaily blooms, but even in blooming dies. What is this wit, which must our cares employ, the owner's wife that other men enjoy? Then most our trouble, still when most admired, and still the more we give, the more required, whose fame with pains we guard, but lose with ease. Sure some to vex, but never all to please. Tis what the vicious fear, the virtuous shun, by fools tis hated, and by knaves undone. If wit so much from ignorance undergo, Ah, let not learning to commence its foe. Of old, those met rewards who could excel, And such were praised, who but endeavored well. Though triumphs were to generals only due, Crowns were reserved to grace the soldiers too. Now they who reach Parnassus' lofty crown employ their pains to spurn some others down. And while self-love each jealous writer rules, contending wits become the sport of fools, but still the worst with most regret commend, for each ill author is as bad a friend. To what base ends and by what abject ways are mortals urged through sacred lust of praise? Ah, ne'er so dire a thirst of glory boast nor in the critic let the man be lost. Good nature and good sense must ever join. To err is human, to forgive divine. But if in noble minds some dregs remain, not yet purged off of spleen and sour disdain, discharge that rage on more provoking crimes, nor fear a dearth in these flagitious times. No pardon vile obscenity should find, though wit and art conspire to move your mind. But dullness with obscenity must prove as shameful sure as impotence in love. In the fat age of pleasure, wealth and ease sprung the rank weed and thrived with large increase. When love was all an easy monarch's care, seldom at council, never in a war, jilts ruled the state and statesmen farces writ. Nay, wits had pensions, and young lords had wit. The fair sat panting at a courtier's play, and not a mask went unimproved away. The modest fan was lifted up no more, and virgins smiled at what they blushed before. The following license of a foreign reign did all the dregs of bold Socinus drain. Then unbelieving priests reformed the nation, and taught more pleasant methods of salvation. 
where heaven's free subjects might their rights dispute, lest God himself should seem too absolute. Pulpits their sacred satire learned to spare, and vice admired to find a flatterer there. Encouraged thus, wits titans braved the skies, and the press groaned with licensed blasphemies. These monsters, critics, with your darts engage, here point your thunder and exhaust your rage. Yet shun their fault, who, scandalously nice, will needs mistake an author into vice. All seems infected, that the infected spy, as all looks yellow to the jaundiced eye. Welcome once again to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you again from Greeley, Colorado for episode 109 of season 3. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, July 26, 2021. I have just read for you the entirety of an essay on criticism, part 2, by Alexander Pope, published 1711. And I know it's a long poem. Please forgive me if I lost you. You're not listening anymore anyways. And if you're still here, you maybe don't mind quite so much. I'm not going to worry myself anymore about it. There is a response still more to the articles we discussed last week on this podcast at thefrontporch.org. Quan and Thompson have replied again with distinctively Christian, an additional response to Reverend Kevin DeYoung, as if the first 10,000 words were not enough, they have given us still more. And I will not go through the entire piece, but I do want to touch on a few points that caught my attention early on. And if they want to keep responding, I'll keep responding to their responses because this isn't going in a way anytime soon. We're going to have this whole woke nonsense to contend with, I think, for years, if not decades, if not generations. So we might as well get settled in and get used to it and get used to the long haul. From the top, Quan and Thompson write, in our previous essay, Sanctifying the Status Quo, a response to Reverend Kevin DeYoung, we examined the methodology that undergirds Kevin DeYoung's critical review of our book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. The mode of theological reasoning that DeYoung deploys, we argued, shapes and at times distorts the very questions he raises. So it seemed proper for us to seek to expose and critique his methodology prior to addressing the substantive issues. I would... As a pause here, refer you back to Mr. Pope's excellent poem from 1711 for my thoughts and sentiments on that. Moving on. Some critics are now suggesting that we chose this particular approach because we, intimidated by the sheer force of his arguments, had no substantive response to offer. Readers may recall, however, that we predicted this reaction. Quote, our intent is not to answer specific technical questions about reparations per se, but to expose and critique the method with which Reverend DeYoung approaches them. As we do so, we understand that some of our critics may see this as a form of evasion, as an attempt to escape the force of probing examination, but this is false. Oh, okay. Well, if you say so, then it must be true. If you say that this is false, then contradiction surely is the strongest 
form of counter-argument. To the contrary, we engage these questions and are engaged by them every day. Again, it's false to assume that our methodological focus was born of evasion, ignorance, or defeat. Rather, we regularly engage questions like those raised by de Young. Uh, okay, well, repetition also is a convincing argument. They merit sustained reflection rather than frivolous reaction, and at this time we would like to share some of the fruit of that reflection and study. Excellent. Anticipation. What follows, then, are brief and provisional responses to some of de Young's critical assessments. Importantly, these are offered against the backdrop of our previous essay and with deliberate appeal to resources from within our shared theological tradition. We continue to reflect on these questions and many others, and we invite you to do the same with curiosity and hope. de Young argues that our book offers nebulous, amorphous, and ultimately spacious moral grounds for its call for restitution. This is especially notable, he believes, in its handling of white supremacy and the way it is related to principles of restitution. For example, when we describe reparations as restitution for the thefts of white supremacy, de Young interprets this phrasing to mean something vague and ill-defined like restitution based on skin color or restitution for white supremacy or restitution with the world. But these renderings, which allegedly illustrate the incoherence of our case, actually misrepresent what we plainly argue in the book. Restitution, the return of ill-gotten goods, to its rightful owners is the biblical response to theft, according to the Eighth Commandment, chapter 5. And theft, we argue, is in fact the animating energy and demonstrable social effect of the cultural disorder called white supremacy, chapter 2. Across history, this racist theft has found tragic and concrete expression in a variety of forms, chapter 3, not only as the theft of black wealth, as is often assumed in reparations conversations, but also the theft of truth about black persons and history, and the theft of power, personal and political. If so, the key moral question is this. What is a biblical response to theft? One crucial answer from the Bible, restitution. This is simply what we mean by restitution for the thefts of white supremacy. The redress of racist evils, namely thefts, that are relentlessly animated by the white supremacy. Another unresolved ambiguity that threatens the cogency of restitution, de Young argues, involves the passage of time. We acknowledge that time adds complexity to restitution's application and that it can, by God's providence and mercy, dampen the damaging effects of past evils. But de Young goes further than this. He cites an excerpt from John Tillotson's Two Sermons on the Nature and Necessity of Restitution, 1707, which states that the obligation to redress injuries of a very ancient date eventually ceaseth and expires, and he claims that this excerpt undermines one of the central arguments of our book. But does it? Consider this. Tillotson reveals the actual time horizon he has in mind when, to illustrate his point, he refers to the conquests of the Saxons, Danes, and Normans on the British Isles. As others have pointed out, these historical injuries occurred fully 600 to 1100 years prior to Tillotson's own day. By comparison, only 150 years have elapsed since the abolition of slavery in the United States. Furthermore, the bishop's outlook in this section of his sermon is informed by prudential and pragmatic considerations more so than by strictly moral ones. Yes, he states that the obligation to redress ancient wrongs eventually ceases because the pursuit of the ancient right to seek restitution would cause endless disturbances and prove to be a great inconvenience to a well-ordered society. 
Crucially, however, he goes on to concede that time in itself doth not alter the nature of things. And in a section de Young omits from his block quotation, Tillotson qualifies his point with the following. Quote, Considering a thing simply in itself, an injury is so far from being lessened or nullified by a tract of time, is increased, and the longer it continues, the greater it is. End quote. Evidently, the bishop would have agreed with his contemporary Matthew Henry, who once wrote, quote, Time does not wear out the guilt of sin, nor can we build hopes of impunity upon the delay of judgments. There is no statute of limitations to be pleaded against God's demands. End quote. In other words, Tillotson does commend prudence and a reasonable handling of very ancient injuries, which at times may entail the relinquishing of rights of redress, yet he is steadfast in his moral appraisal of those injuries, namely, when a theft, even a very old theft, is considered simply in itself. Restitution is still warranted according to the nature of things. One more example related to the problem of time. At one point, de Young acknowledges that the obligation to make restitution may transfer to ancestors, though he goes on to limit that transfer, somewhat arbitrarily, to one generation only. Very well. How, then, shall we respond to racial thefts that date back to the days of Jim Crow, thefts committed only one generation ago? Would de Young agree that the responsibility to redress them endures to this day, that they have not expired with so brief a passing of time? Now, we're going to stop right there. I've just been reading for you the latest from Quan and Thompson, published July 22nd. Today is July 26th, so this piece by them was published last Thursday. I would like to make a few points of order with regards to what it is that Quan and Thompson are arguing here. First of all, the difference between 600 years and 1100 years in the case of Tillotson's example of the Normans and the Saxons and what they committed as far as atrocities and theft and conquest with the people of Great Britain, that difference between 600 and 1100 years in Tillotson's examples and merely 150 years in the case of how much time has transpired between us and the emancipation of slavery here in the United States of America is beside the point. Let's key in on the fact that this is longer than a lifespan. Quan and Thompson make the claim that Jim Crow is merely one generation behind us. And therefore, according to, as they admit, Tillotson's rather arbitrary limitation on how much time should pass before we start trying to make restitution for the sins of previous generations, our ancestors, against the ancestors of our contemporaries. They admit that Tillotson limits arbitrarily the restitution, the statute of limitations, if you will, to one generation. And then they go on to claim that Jim Crow is merely one generation behind us. However, if you do a search for 
How long is a generation? Type it in your favorite search engine. Type it in Google, ask Siri, ask Alexa, type it into DuckDuckGo. That's what I did. The response I get from the first several results is that a generation is somewhere between 20 and 40 years. Some links say between 20 and 30 years. Some say 25 years. Generally considered, according to Wikipedia, about 20 to 30 years during which children are born and grow up, become adults, and begin to have children of their own. Do another search for Jim Crow laws. And if you find yourself at the Wikipedia entry for Jim Crow laws, you will read, these laws were enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by white Southern Democrat-dominated state legislatures to disenfranchise and remove political and economic gains made by black people during the Reconstruction period. Jim Crow laws were enforced until 1965. I was born one generation after Jim Crow laws were nullified and struck down. I was born in 1986, November 5th, Guy Fawkes Day, 1986, 21 years after Jim Crow laws were officially once and for all struck down in the United States of America. I am now 34. This coming November, I will be 35. When I turn 35, you will be able to say it's been 56 years since Jim Crow laws were struck down in the United States of America. Nearly three generations have passed if you define a generation by 20 years. My wife and I had our first son when we were 20. Nearly three generations have passed since Jim Crow laws were struck down. And I would point out again, since they were struck down, they were struck down in 1965. This is not 1985. This isn't even 2005. This is the year 2021. I would point that out to Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. Not one generation. Two to three generations removed are we from the Jim Crow laws. And again, to emphasize through repetition, since they also are fond of that tactic, the Jim Crow laws were struck down. So we're not arguing back and forth about whether Jim Crow laws should be reimposed. We're not arguing about whether they should be struck down since they already have been. What exactly is their argument? Their argument is that restitution should be paid because we're only one generation removed. What about the Great Society? The Great Society has been not so great, actually, for black Americans. Prior to LBJ's welfare state scheme and his very mercenary endorsement of the civil rights movement, prior to that, black Americans had intact families. They were upwardly mobile. I don't mean that LBJ 
shouldn't have supported the civil rights movement, but his Great Society program, you could see as a form of reparations, and it did great harm to black Americans, black American families first and foremost, by extension, black American individuals and the black American community. Intact families with a mother and a father both in the home consistently raising their children, disciplining their children, training their children, teaching their children, loving their children, protecting their children, guiding their children, correcting their children, helping their children would have been a infinitely greater blessing to the black community in America than the kind of reparations which have already been paid to one generation, two generations, almost three generations of black Americans post Jim Crow laws, American South. I would also direct your attention to Ezekiel 18. And I'm going to read for you this entire chapter. Forgive me for doing so much reading to you, but this is important. I don't want to just pull one verse out out of context and have it be dismissed or have the full weight of it be underappreciated. Ezekiel chapter 18 in the New American Standard Bible. The heading is God deals justly with individuals. Verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, What do you people mean by using this proverb about the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat sour grapes, but it is the children's teeth that have become blunt. As I live, declares Yahweh, you certainly are not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, if he does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, and if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, and if he does not lend money at interest or take interest, if he keeps his hand from injustice and executes true justice between one person and another, if he walks in my statutes and keeps my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will certainly live, declares the Lord God. However, he may father a violent son who sheds blood and does any one of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but raises his eyes to the idols and commits abomination, lends money at interest and takes interest. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He shall surely be put to death. His blood will be on himself. Now behold, he has fathered a son who saw all his father's sins, which he committed, but he has seen them and does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He has not defiled his neighbor's wife, nor oppressed anyone, nor retained a pledge 
nor committed robbery. Instead, he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor and does not take any kind of interest on loans, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's guilt. He will certainly live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his guilt. Yet you say, why should the son not suffer the punishment for the father's guilt? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has kept all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. A son will not suffer the punishment for the father's guilt, nor will a father suffer the punishment for the son's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if the wicked person turns from all his sins, which he has committed and keeps all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his offenses, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness, which he has practiced. He will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he would turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness, commits injustice, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked person does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness, commits injustice, and dies because of it, for his injustice, which he has committed, he dies. But when a wicked person turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Since he understood and turned away from all his offenses, which he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore I will judge you, house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your offenses, so that wrongdoing does not become a stumbling block to you. Hurl away from you all your offenses which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. That is Ezekiel chapter 18 in the New American Standard Bible. I want you to think on this. Consider that the whole argument that Quan and Thompson are making here ignores such passages as this. As a criticism with charity not overly harsh. I think that Pastor DeYoung should have brought this up because this is God's standard of justice. And we do well to reject social justice because 
it contradicts God's standard of justice. But we can't just reject social justice on its own terms. We have to embrace biblical justice, and we have to distinctly, clearly explain why biblical justice is infinitely better than social justice and why they are not the same thing. Social justice has no patience for Ezekiel chapter 18. Social justice believes that sons and grandsons and great-grandsons should be liable for the sins of their fathers, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers. Now you can say, well, wait a second. Quan and Thompson are not arguing that we should be putting white people to death for the sins of their fathers, their grandfathers, and their great-grandfathers. But au contraire, the penalty for sin, apart from Christ, is death. Quan and Thompson are repeating a godless theory. If the woke Christian crowd wants to embrace critical race theory as an analytical tool, we do well to note where that analytical tool comes from and what its purpose is. Why was it formed and fashioned? This tool was formed and fashioned to promote communism and to undermine free market capitalism and Western civilization and our Judeo-Christian values. It makes war on and is designed to dismantle, to disassemble, to break down, to tear apart our culture, our civilization, our tradition, and by that I mean Western civilization. Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman ways of thinking and organizing ourselves because they stand in the way of communism. Communism is inherently godless. There has been no case in which communism was wedded successfully with Christian faith. Communism always, in the past 200 years, always makes war against Christian faith because they are competing worldviews. They are competing views of God. In the communist view, there is no God. They are competing views of man. God says in Ezekiel 18 that a father's sins are on the father, but if the son sees the sins that his father commits and turns away from them, he will live. Even if the father himself has done wicked deeds, but he turns away from those sins and those wicked deeds and repents, he will live. And yet, the woke crowd, Quan and Thompson, are not satisfied. They claim falsely that one generation has passed since Jim Crow. But that is not true. We are now, depending on how long you believe a generation is, two to three generations. Even if you went by the standard God used with the children of Israel wandering in the desert because they grumbled against God when they were listening to the report of the 10 spies coming back out of the 12 from scouting the promised land of Canaan, God has Israel wander in the desert for 40 years until all that generation passes away. 
that whole generation passes away, which was culpable for grumbling against the Lord. Their children, who grow up at that time, inherit the promised land. But the previous generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, that previous generation passes away. They die in the desert. Joshua and Caleb inherit the promised land. The children of that generation that grumbled against the Lord inherit the promised land. That's 40 years. Are Quan and Thompson more righteous than God? That is the question that needs to be asked of them directly. That is the question that needs to be asked of the woke Christians directly. Do you think yourself more righteous than God? That's not a surprise to God, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Again, if we read Ezekiel 18, how does it conclude? It concludes with God rebuking Israel. Therefore, I will judge you, house of Israel, each according to his conduct. Each according to his conduct. Not collectively, individually. When the collective is made up entirely of individuals who are behaving wickedly, then God deals with the whole nation and they all perish. But here God deals justly with individuals. Otherwise, the story of Lot and his family being rescued out of Sodom makes no sense. Otherwise, the story of Noah and his family being rescued from the great deluge makes no sense. Repent and turn away from all your offenses so that wrongdoing does not become a stumbling block to you. Hurl away from you all your offenses which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. But the house of Israel says, verse 29, The way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? That's the response that God gives. Are my ways not right, house of Israel? Is that your final answer? You sure about that? Are you sure about that? I'll give you a little time to think it over. Maybe think that over a little bit harder, a little more deeply. Am I really the one that's not right, or are you the one that's not right? If we disagree, God says, if we disagree, do you really think I'm the one who got the math wrong, or did you maybe forget your figures? Double-check your math. I'll wait. That's exactly the response to Quan and Thompson and the woke Christian crowd. The way of the Lord is not right. Really? Really. God judges individuals, and yet you sit in the position of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And by extension, you're accusing God, you're accusing Christ of being unfair, unjust. Well, that's not fair. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, the sins of a generation being on that generation and not on all successive generations. You're guilty of the very same sin for which you condemn all of those white Americans who said that black Africans were under the curse of Ham. That was the argument, that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness and was cursed by Noah that the descendants of Ham would be the slaves of the descendants of his brothers. And so therefore, it was right to take all Africans as slaves. 
That was their lot. That was the penalty. We're going to deal with all future generations. No statute of limitation. All future generations are under this curse because their father committed this sin. And yet, Quan Thompson, the woke Christian crowd, the liberation theology crowd, the let's combine Marxism and Christianity crowd is guilty of the very same thing. Only in some of our cases, and a great many of our cases, not even our ancestors ever owned any slaves. Our ancestors never owned any black African slaves, and yet we stand condemned. Or in my case, I can trace at least one ancestor on my mother's father's mother's side who fought for the Confederacy. His father owned two or three slaves in North Carolina. So now I'm guilty. It doesn't matter that the rest of my great-great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-grandparents owned no slaves. It doesn't matter that my great-great-great-grandfather McFarland fought for the Union, led troops at the Battle of Gettysburg in decisive action, lost a leg, spent the rest of his life caring for the orphans made by the Civil War. doesn't matter. Forever after, by virtue of that fourth great-grandfather on the Blaylock side, now I'm guilty. Got to pay reparations. Lord have mercy. No, really. That's all I've got. That's all I have for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.